Hey folks, I don't like starting an episode this way, but I think today's subject warrants it. This is a content warning. I haven't covered anything like this before, and I don't want to surprise the listener. This episode is about Heaven's Gate. In 1997, 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult committed ritualistic suicide. In case this is the first episode you downloaded of The Midnight Owl, I have a dark sense of humor. It's how I deal with and understand the occult, supernatural, and terrible tragedy. That's not to say I'm actually funny. I try, but hey, what can you do? There are documentaries out there and podcasts that have done episodes on this subject. They're well-researched and compelling. A standout podcast example would be Glenn Washington's podcast called Heaven's Gate. It's 11 episodes and has been idle since about 2017. It has exclusive interviews, recordings from the cult leader, and an interesting perspective from a host that grew up in an actual cult. My style isn't for everyone, and I do not take offense if you'd rather not listen. Good luck on your journey. And hoot hoot. Good evening and welcome to The Midnight Owl. I'm your host, Tim. The Midnight Owl is a proud member of the Not After 30 podcast network. This podcast is meant to be an entertainment podcast. The Midnight Owl is your buddy that was alive and concerned during Y2K. This week's episode is about the cult known as Heaven's Gate. I've been involved in a number of cults, both as a leader and a follower. You have more fun as a follower, but you make more money as a leader. Creed Bratton. What's the price to get into heaven? Good deeds and a clear conscience? Believing in the right God or true path? Maybe. Maybe it's $5.75. I'm a chronic fence-sitter, and as such, politically, I'm mostly neutral. As far as religion, I'm agnostic. I know, that's a big leap of faith, right? In my minor understanding of the universe, there is a higher power. It might have a hand in the world, but I have free will, and I am abiding by the natural law that higher power set forth. Let's call those natural laws science. There's probably more to it than that rudimentary point of view, but... I'm not at a point in my life that it overly concerns me. I have my minor understanding of the greater universe, and for now I'll be happy to read about monsters and myths while I muddle my way through life. I respect others that are searching for that meaning or understanding. Maybe it's important to remember that we both are seekers of truth, the faithful and scientific, and the mix of the two. However much we disagree on whatever the answer is, at our core we are the same, We have the same morality. We both marvel at the amazing things humanity is capable of. Maybe it's the evolution of thought, the art we create, the kindness one can show to another without promise of any kind. We are both thankful when the beauty of this world inspires wonder. And we both know what evil is. This is a story about evil and the power of words. Both those that would target people on the path of self-discovery and change them into what they would consider more than human. Bonnie Lou Nettles was born August 29, 1927. Born and raised in the Baptist faith, she married a businessman in 1949 at 22. The couple had four children, 
It's been said that the couple were stable until 1972. Bonnie had a steady job as a nurse. In a documentary I watched, there was a heartbreaking scene when her daughter Terry talked about how her and her mom shared these special moments. They'd go out in the backyard and look up at the stars. It would be really neat if one would come and pick us up and take us away. Because neither one of us really felt like we were part of this world, that we were always on the outside looking in. And we used to dream about that a lot. We wanted something different. Sometimes Mom and I will have a coffee on the porch. I'll have a smoke and pace and we'll just talk. It might be about the next nonsense show I'm putting together. Sometimes it's if we win the lottery. What will our dream kitchen look like? Hers has a walk-in pantry. Mine has an exhaust fan above the table so I can smoke a bowl while I'm cooking and listening to podcasts without stinking up the house. She rolls her eyes at that sometimes. At this point in her life, Bonnie still cared enough about her children to dream with them. Even if she was dreaming of getting away. Bonnie was about 45 in 1972. This is when her life took an unexpected turn. Her marriage was falling apart as she expressed her expanding spiritual powers. Bonnie Lou Nettles believed she was in spiritual contact with a 19th century monk named Brother Francis. Brother Francis would give Bonnie instruction. With this religious awakening, Bonnie began to go further into esoteric beliefs, conducting seances with other mediums to contact the spirit world. She studied theosophy and the occult. Theosophy is a religion established in the United States by Helena Blavatsky. It was a part of the occult revival during the late 1800s. It's a combination of many religions and philosophies, truth being the ultimate goal. Blavatsky said that there was a secretive brotherhood of spiritual adepts across the world, referred to as the Masters. They possess supernatural powers and a great deal of wisdom. It is through Blavatsky that the Masters chose to disseminate their wisdom to the world. In Theosophy, there are themes of reincarnation and the need for spiritual growth. It's worth noting here that Blavatsky was a controversial figure. She was one of the presidents of the society formed around her beliefs and writings. Not an easy thing for a woman to accomplish in 1875, but many of her supernatural demonstrations have been called into question as a hoax. As well, a bastardized form of theosophy appeared in Austria between 1890 and 1930 under the name Arminism and Ariosophy. Allegedly, these beliefs would go on to form the Nazi occult doctrine. Instead of a worldwide group of masters, it was an ancient race of Aryans that were superhumans. There's much more to it than my bare-bones explanation here, but I'll save that for another episode. Bonnie Lou Nettles had taken to astrology. It went from some passing interest to a great passion writing out people's charts. Bonnie Lou claimed that when she went to various fortune tellers... They would tell her that she was about to meet a mysterious tall man who had light hair and a fair complexion. Marshall Herf Applewhite Jr. was born May 17, 1931. Marshall Applewhite grew up in Texas. Marshall was a tall man with light-colored hair and a fair complexion. Marshall also led a mundane life of sorts for the first 34 or so years of his life. He attended college and received a bachelor's in philosophy, after which Marshall enrolled in seminary school to study theology in hopes of following in his father's footsteps to become a minister. 
After dropping out of seminary school in 1954 at the age of 23, he was drafted into the American military where he served the Army Signal Corps. The Army Signal Corps is basically the group responsible for communications and information systems of the military's combined forces. In 1956, Marshall left the military and enrolled at the University of Colorado, where he earned a master's degree with a focus on musical theater. Marshall Applewhite was married in 1952. He had two children, a son named Mark and a girl named Lane. Kind of dull, right? But I mention all of this to point out the fact that is often overlooked when telling this story. Marshall Applewhite was not a stupid man. He had at his disposal years of education. An education in thought and ways to convey those thoughts, whether through music, religion, or the rigorous structure of the military-industrial complex. Marshall moved to New York City and tried unsuccessfully to launch a professional singing career. After this failure, he moved to Alabama, where he taught music at their university. He left after an alleged affair with a student that at this time was yet unknown to his wife. Later, moving back to his home state of Texas, he served as the chair of the music department for the University of St. Thomas in the city of Houston. I went through a bout of unemployment about three years ago. I struggled to use Indeed, Monster, and a handful of other apps to find a job one town over. Every day I could scroll through and apply to hundreds of postings and nothing. How was this man consistently employed across three states pre-internet? The classified ads in the back of newspapers? The millennial in me needs to take a second at this part of the story because it seems unfathomable. There's probably no factual correlation, but around the time print media died, we all realized there was no work and houses were too expensive. I'm just saying. Locally, Applewhite became a popular singer in the Houston area and served as the choir director for St. Mark's Episcopal Church. Finally finding a spark of the success he craved, Applewhite was given the opportunity to perform at the Houston Grand Opera. In 1965, at the age of 34, Applewhite's life began to fall apart. As if a train in slow motion leaving the rails, his world became more and more tumultuous. Much like Bonnie Lou Nettles. He was living a life that he didn't connect with in a society that didn't accept him. Applewhite's wife found out about the affair. She separated from him, taking the children. Three years later, they would divorce. During this time, Applewhite continued to explore his sexuality, living openly gay for a time, then pursuing a relationship with a young woman that was ended because of pressure from her family. In 1970, he resigned from his job. Applewhite said that he had left his job at St. Thomas University because of depression and other emotional problems. Others suspected that it was due to another affair between Applewhite and a student. who'd move around taking odd jobs to survive. In 1971, Marshall Applewhite Sr. died, sending Marshall Applewhite Jr. into a deeper depressive state. And that takes us to a union. It's human to search in times of trouble when we're sad, when we don't know what to believe, when we aren't sure who we truly are. When this world becomes so big and we begin to believe we will never have our place in it. More than anything, we're searching for that thing that might complete us. Sometimes it's the content of your Amazon shopping cart in a desperate bid to have a material item that might make a difference. 
Maybe it's drugs or alcohol to find that feeling of calm contentment with yourself and past mistakes or embarrassments. It's possible self-care, like working out or finding an interesting hobby, can pull you out of the darkness. Other times, it can be in a philosophy, meditation, or faith-based belief. Some will find that completion in another. That other half, my couple friends smugly smile and nod at each other about. Bonnie Lou Nettles and Marshall Applewhite completed each other. They were soulmates. There are many stories about how those two met. Most revolve around a hospital, the hospital Bonnie Lou Nettles was a nurse at. Applewhite's story was that he was at the hospital visiting a dear friend. Applewhite's sister says he was hospitalized after having heart issues and had a near-death experience. Others say he was an inpatient at the psychiatric ward and Bonnie was covering in that department the day he was admitted. Oddly, Terry, Bonnie Lou's daughter, said it was at the local theater where Bonnie Lou's son Joe was attending a class. Joe Nettles confirmed this version of events. The where doesn't matter, all these stories end the same. Bonnie and Marshall locked eyes and shared a deep connection. One that was more than a passing glance between strangers. Both would remark later that in that moment, they shared a psychic connection that went beyond that single moment in time. That they knew each other from past lives and they shared in those moments. Living in a culture of dating apps, I think we can all appreciate the white lie of altering how and where you met your soulmate. You gotta aim for something more romantic than the setting of a dingy Eastside Mario's because when you give that humble brag speech at your wedding, you need to be on point. Bonnie shared with Marshall that she had been foretold of their meeting by extraterrestrials. He was to take on a divine assignment. I wonder what happened to Brother Francis? This meeting would end their mundane life. Bonnie Lou Nettles was 45, Marshall Applewhite was 41. Susan Rain speculated that at this time, Marshall Applewhite had a schizophrenic episode. If the story that he was hospitalized for a psychiatric treatment is true, so begins a decades-long tragedy. I have never had a psychotic break. I have dealt with uh, depression and anxiety I I'm dealing with. I've spoken to some people that have been on their own mental illness journey, though. And I can just imagine the joy and relief if one of the people trusted to help you determine reality slips into your life and confirms your delusions or offers you a new one. You are special. The sadness and lost feeling you're going through right now is because you haven't accepted the truth yet. These doctors are only offering you lies. They're telling you that this isn't real because you are so special that it'd tear down the very fabric of reality if you could only just see the truth. Every lie these Luciferians have built we will destroy and show the truth to the world. And I will show you the way. And I will protect you. And you never have to be alone again. How could you not believe the person offering you salvation? Everyone around you is trying to break you of a thought process. They're only doing that because they are the enemy. I'm your friend. Where Susan Rain suspected that Applewhite was having a schizophrenic episode, Robert J. Lifton suggested that Nettles was responsible for keeping a psychosis in check. Yin and yang, balance in all things. 
In later years, knowing the pain of being alone and alienated would become Bonnie and Marshall's greatest tool. It might have been the strongest, most important lesson they ever learned. Using these feelings, they could reach out to like-minded lost souls to join their cause, as well as helping their converts overcome their humanity, while simultaneously alienating them from family, friends, and the world at large. Very soon after this meeting, Bonnie Lou Nettles divorced from her husband. He took custody of the children. Bonnie and Marshall began to live together. Their relationship was and would remain a platonic one. Marshall Applewhite had his heart broken one too many times by men and women. Swearing off earthly love would become a major cornerstone of the religion he and Bonnie would create. Marshall permanently broke off contact with his ex-wife, children, and family at this point. Marshall had begun to look into astrology and New Age beliefs at this time under the direction of Bonnie. They opened a bookstore together named the Christian Arts Center. The Christian Arts Center catered to a wide range of spiritual beliefs. They also begun a new enterprise called The Known Place, where they endeavored to teach classes on mysticism and theosophy. Not finding the right fit, they closed these businesses a little over a year after starting them. Well, that's their account. More than likely, these businesses failed. In 1973, they took to the road. This could be seen as their time in the desert. This is where they were finding and defining their beliefs. They wanted to find their flock, to travel and teach others about their beliefs. The pair had little money and would have to resort to selling their blood or working odd jobs like digging ditches. Not an easy thing for someone in their 40s to do. They begged on streets and subsisted on bread rolls. When they needed a place to stay, they camped or stayed at a hotel, occasionally skipping out on the bill. While they traveled, they studied religious figures and philosophies. The Bible was at the forefront of their study material. They focused on the teachings of Christology, the, the study of Jesus Christ's divinity and humanity and the relationship between them, asceticism, abstinence from earthly pleasures, and the way it can strengthen the soul. They also studied astology, the ending of things, the ending of a life, the ending of an age, or the apocalypse, an ending of all things. Religious dogma was not the only influence on these two. There's also a heavy influence of science fiction. Arthur C. Clarke and Robert A. Heinlein being among Applewhite's favorites. I haven't taken the time to read or watch 2001 A Space Odyssey written by Arthur C. Clarke, but I've only ever heard about how amazing it is and how it influenced the sci-fi genre as a whole. It's one of those movies and book or it's one of those books that I probably know the entire story based on how many times it's been parodied in every other science fiction genre. It feels like a giant hole in my nerdy education. Robert A. Highland, on the other hand, I am extremely familiar with his work. He wrote Starship Troopers for God's sakes. I have read that book, listened to the audiobook multiple times, more times than I can count. I have sat down and watched the movie. I can still picture the cover of that book. A space marine with a big laser gun having a helmet lowered down over his head. It, it's a great book, you know, written from another time, but a great book. They also love Star Trek. Something the cult would have an influence on them for their entire existence. You know, honestly, I'm more of a Star Wars guy, but I do like Star Trek. You know, I've, I've seen all of the original series, all of the movies, all of the next generation... 
when I was a kid after high school, I'd even get off the bus and rush home because Voyager was on. And Captain Janeway was badass. It's unsettling to have a common thread between myself and a cult leader. All these studies would inform and shape Marshall and Bonnie's belief system in the years to come. In 1974, a mutual friend from Houston reached out to them looking to learn more about their teachings. She would become their first convert, leaving her husband for a time to follow Bonnie and Marshall. Bonnie and Marshall would finally come to realize that their defined assignment was that they were the two witnesses, as mentioned in the Book of Revelations. In the Book of Revelations, near the second coming and ending of the world, two witnesses would be granted authority to prophecy. They are granted powers to strike down their enemies with fire from their mouth and the ability to rain down plagues. They have also been granted powers over the sky and water so that they will not be interrupted as they spread the word of God. The world and Satan himself will stand opposed to the two witnesses, killing them and reveling in their deaths for three and a half days. Then God will resurrect the two, bringing them to heaven in front of those that struck them down. Ending the revelry. Fear struck into the hearts of man. Great earthquake will occur, killing 7,000 men. A lot of documentaries and podcasts note that this was a different time. It was the 1970s and early 80s. In North America, looking up at the stars and wondering about what was out there was normal. Spiritual self-discovery was commonplace at this time. People trying many different forms of belief to find their true self. I don't really understand this, and maybe I can't. The picture in my head is that North America until the 1950s is people going to church with white picket fences to greet them when they came home. They were going to the same churches their parents went to. Their home was in the same city they grew up in. With the 60s and the social revolution that happened, people felt free to try and find the belief system that best suited them. Not only that, but new ideas were coming out of what does it mean to fit into society, if whether or not conformity was truly the American way? In the background of all of this, there's this amazingly fast technological revolution happening. I was born in the late 80s. By the time I was 10, we had a computer in our house with dial-up internet. You know, I never became a tech whiz, but I didn't grow up and have tech thrown at me that if I didn't learn, I wouldn't be employable. That being said, I've been present for the continuous evolution, and I'm at a point where I don't understand everything, like TikTok or Twitter, but at least it's not foreign to me. For people born in the 30s and 40s, like Bonnie and Marshall, how did they view the vast leaps in technology from radio to colored TV? They were in their 40s at this point, looking at a future they may not have seen themselves being a welcome part of. Bonnie and Marshall married these two ideas with the ancient astronaut theories coming out at this time. I love the show Ancient Aliens, but I wonder why they never took on Heaven's Gate as an episode. Cowards. The book cited as possibly having the greatest influence was Chariots of the Gods by Eric von Daniken. Bonnie and Marshall's religious dogma grew to include Jesus was an alien. As well, other biblical figures were also aliens. If I understand the doctrine correctly, it's less that these aliens are from some far-off planet, but rather heaven is a physical plane, and that physical plane is space. At this point, they decided to refer to themselves as the two. 
This sounds like two people who are just meandering around the country and taking all of the drugs, going further and further down the rabbit hole of creating their own reality. But the two came from the kingdom of heaven to tell us that our souls are recycled here on earth until such time we have learned and evolved to a point we can be healthy, active members of the next level. The aliens that created the earth are inhabitants of the next level and we are in many ways their children, here on earth until our souls can have enough experience to evolve past being human. Only at the end of an age can we pass from this world to the next. Jesus, 2000 years ago, ushered in one such age. Bonnie and Marshall, as the two were here to show others how to leave before the world was spaded over, and the aliens could reseed the planet with new souls that could have a chance to grow in the garden. And another 2,000 year cycle begins. If you didn't listen, they weren't sure what would happen to your soul. At the very least, you would risk being stuck in this world for another 2,000 year cycle. Part of being the two witnesses is that you must be killed for spreading the truth. Although doctrine would evolve over time with their understanding, Bonnie and Marshall were living under the belief, if they actually believed, that at some point the government or citizens of the world would rise up and kill them. Because Revelation said the two must be killed, so it must be. Instead of the heavens opening up and angels descending or the hand of God reaching down, a spaceship would descend from the sky upon the world resurrect the witnesses and transform them into their new bodies. Do you know what a gray is? In UFO circles, it's a very vivid image that we can all conjure immediately. A gray refers to an alien being that has large eyes, usually black, gray skin, little nose cavity, hairless, no sex organs, with these elongated limbs sometimes. The two believed when they entered the next level, this is what their bodies would look like. The resurrection of the witnesses was referred to as the demonstration. Along with having to fulfill biblical prophecy, they believed that they had higher level minds, essentially the evolved minds of those that inhabit heaven or the next level, the gray aliens. This would cause irritation as they tried to spread the words of warning and salvation because only those with an inkling of a higher level mind could understand them. Even someone capable of hearing the words of the two and know them to be true would only ever fully grasp a sliver of what they were actually trying to say. They were once quoted as saying that it, you should think of it like you're trying to talk to a dog. They might understand Alpo, but everything else would be nonsense. The two had to expand the minds of their followers by going through rigorous training and swearing off all things human. That's kind of a nice built-in scapegoat. If your mind is so complex and intelligence, if you ever get caught in a lie, or if doctrine ever doesn't start making sense to someone, you can just say, well, you don't have the mind for this yet. Your mind hasn't expanded to the point that you could understand it. Consider their words of warning. The window was closing. The two had arrived. We must evolve quickly if we want to get off this world and out of this soul cycle. Ever watch the news and feel your soul get tired watching the endless stream of horrific events and panic-inducing incidents? Gas has dropped close to 30 cents a liter here in Canada. Grocery stores and Costco are sold out of toilet paper because there's an endless stream of coverage on the coronavirus. It's obviously serious. Our economy will be in tatters. 
thousands could lose their jobs or homes. We, as a society, have chosen to band together to protect those amongst us that have weakened immunity, that life is more important than material wealth or convenience. As far as evolution of human morality, hey, maybe this is something we can build off of. So fistfighting over supplies is kind of displacing your anxiety and hoarding is fucked, so... Shake your head. We are in a singularly unique circumstance right now. No matter what side of the conversation you're on, we are living in a time like no other in human history. The world has never shut itself down like this before. Hopefully lessons are learned this round and we have policies in place for next year's flu season. I think what I'm trying to say is that in these tough times, try not to be a dickhead. Alright, back to the soul feeling drained. Ever take a look at the trajectory of your life and think that no matter how hard you try, for some reason in this lifetime, you will never know true freedom? You'll be shackled to a job, a spouse, children, debts, and never know anything else until your body is so fucking used up that you'll be allowed to retire from the workforce. Too old to really enjoy being outside of the machine. Even death isn't a release from this hellish existence because your soul will just return to this world. You are obligated to do it all over again and again and again. The two wanted to reach you to help you end the cycle. Together they wrote a pamphlet that described Jesus reincarnated as a Texan. Oddly enough, Marshall Applewhite was a Texan. Funny. At this point, in the 70s, to me it sounds like Bonnie Lou is the true leader of this group. Marshall Applewhite even refers to her as his older member, going to her for advice, allowing her to correct his thinking. We talked earlier about Helena Blavatsky founding Theosophy. Even as the originator of Theosophy, the person she alleges was given the divine word from the masters, she had to sit with two men as co-presidents to get anyone to listen. Why was Marshall Applewhite Jesus? I wonder how equal a partnership Bonnie and Marshall actually had. Was he the first convert to a cult of personality of Bonnie Lou Nettles? Because she needed a male speaker to be taken seriously and a fall guy if she ever decided she wanted out? Who better to take responsibility if things went horrifically wrong than a psychiatric patient that abandoned his kids? The two held meetings in church basements or spiritual circles from city to city across many states and even up into Vancouver, Canada. Their ideas were poorly received, feeding into the delusion that they were right. The world could not accept the truths they had been sent here to give. Maybe the assassination wasn't a physical one, like the Bible foretold, but the misrepresentation and character assassinations they had suffered at the hands of the media. The couple fell on hard times again. Their first convert returned to her family. The husband had Bonnie and Marshall charged for credit card fraud for the charges made after the housewife had returned home. This was quickly cleared up when she came forward to say that she had given it to the two in case of emergency. Although the credit card was cleared up, the two were in possession of a stolen car. They had been driving around in a rental car they had failed to return. Like walking out on the hotel bills or other lodging fees, not paying for the rental car was okay because they were divinely authorized to do these things. God insisted they do it because they had a message to spread. Unfortunately, the law system did not see it that way and Marshall Applewhite was incarcerated for six months. 
During this time, Bonnie Lou Nettles went back to work as a nurse. The fall guy did his job, I guess. This time solidified Applewhite's belief in extraterrestrials, and he began to move away from more of the occult theories that he had been studying. As soon as he was out of jail, the two reconnected and got back on the road. The resolve hardened by the adversity, proving again that they were right. They traveled together for years, spreading the word of the end times. I have trouble committing to a road trip that will take me more than a few hours with someone. Will they keep their side of the car clean? Are they going to complain or talk over my podcasts? Can they hold their bladder long enough to when I need to stop for a smoke? This did not seem to bother the two. Their mission became singular. They would try to contact the extraterrestrials of the next level. Until 1975, they made little headway in recruiting any disciples. But that was about to change. Their disciples would come to be known as the crew. Why the crew? Because as soon as they were saved, trained to lose their humanity, the aliens would arrive for the demonstration. The loyal members of their flock would be taken aboard the UFO and transformed into their new bodies, that of the Greys. From there, the crew would travel the next level as part of the two spaceship crew. The crew was also called the classroom, since they were learning from their older members of the next level. The two, Bonnie and Marshall. Man, these people love making up their own language, and as a nerd, I respect it. It deepens the fiction to have terms and phrases that fleshes out a universe. I mean, if I were to talk Star Wars nomenclature with people that knew what I was talking about, outsiders would look at us if we were talking in a foreign language. Do you know the difference between a Jedi and a Corellian Jedi? Do you know what a holocron is? A stim pack? A blaster? What basic is? Droids? Kashyyyk? Koroban? Vibroblade? That's not even the obscure stuff. Using context clues, you might be able to glean some of that. But I am in those worlds when I hear the language. I am more immersed. And not to make this a Star Wars versus Star Trek debate, our language is way cooler than that of Trekkies. Phaser, tricorder, holodeck. They all kind of sound dorky, right? <laughs> five years into their divine assignment, five years of cramped drives, five years of people laughing at them, challenging their beliefs. After a failed bookstores, failed spiritual circles, the two hit pay dirt. The crew that they had assembled up until that point gathered a meeting in a hotel in Waldport, Oregon. The crew was convinced to sell off their worldly possessions. They were instructed to say goodbye to their families and friends. A group of about 20 people disappeared that night. CBS Evening News, anchored by Walter Cronkite, reported the events. It was the very first national coverage on the group, what would eventually become Heaven's Gate. The crew was going underground. They needed time to prepare and the world was going to try and stop them. That and human contact with those that love you would slow your transformation into a next level being. The two had every member change their names, both for when they were out in the real world so that they could not easily be tracked, and also within the crew or classroom because they needed to separate themselves from their human form. They were more than the bodies their souls traveled in. 
and associating with the life they had before would only exacerbate human tendencies. The two at this point had already gone through various monikers, Bo and Pete being the standout. The shepherd and the flock? The classroom would have their names changed many times over the years, so that the names they were given wouldn't become their new identity. At this point, the two decided on their final names. Marshall became Doe, and Bonnie became T. They chose these names because they had no meaning. It was easier to disassociate from their human form to become the sole piloting the vehicle if there wasn't any attachment to an identity made up of a lifetime of memories and feelings, but they still needed a label so that the classroom and their leaders could cohesively function and identify one another. Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti. Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti. I'm sorry about that, folks. This cult is steeped in pop culture, winks, and references. I am sure most of us are familiar with the sound of music. Is it a coincidence that Do and T of that song would be the beginning and ending? That Bonnie and her daughter watched the sound of music together and shared a love for it? That Marshall was a musical theater guy? This is the names they chose that were meant to mean nothing. Even the name of the group and recruitment methods evolved and changed over the years. Um, anonymous Sexaholic Celibate Church. Human Individual Metamorphosis, or HIM for short. Disciples were sent out with posters on streets and college campuses. Doe and T transitioned away from teaching that they were the two witnesses. Although they still were the two witnesses, it's just that they were so much more than two random people chosen to speak the word of God. It was more complicated than that. Doe's vehicle was inhabited by the same alien spirit which belonged to Jesus. T was presented as God the Father. Doe, T, and the crew from the 70s and 80s saw their membership swell. Some reports saying they had a few hundred followers. I couldn't really verify that and I don't believe it. Traveling from state to state in destitution, spreading the word of the UFO too. Sometimes the disciples being sent out on tasks or missions for weeks at a time with no one other than their check partner. Doe and T were well read in science fiction, Christianity, and New Age movements as I've stated before. This was a distinct advantage as people milled from spiritual leader to spiritual leader when they found T and Doe, they found a mix of terminology they were familiar with, and a twist they could understand in a world that was becoming technologically dependent. Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms or strengthens one's prior personal beliefs or hypothesis. It's a type of cognitive bias. People display this bias when they gather or remember information selectively, or when they interpret it in a biased way. The effect is stronger for desired outcomes, for emotionally charged issues, and for deeply entrenched beliefs. Let's say you buy a red Honda. You've never seen a red Honda in your city before that day. The next day you see five, and the day after that you see ten. Your mind is triggered because you now own this vehicle and you're registering it. It's not because all of a sudden there was an uptick in red Honda sales. On the rare occasion Doe and T allowed their followers to contact family and friends by mail or payphone, yes, mail and payphone, this is how old the story is, the members of the classroom would talk about how this all just made sense, that Doe and T had 
spoke to them and it said something that resonated within them. All of them had a belief in aliens and a religious or spiritual background before they met Doe and T. So when it's mixed together and presented to you for the first time, your mind has a knee-jerk reaction of, oh fuck, yes, I'm right. And you start giving this implied trust and honesty to the speaker because they're saying what you already believe. That being said, their mythology was beginning to paint Doe and T into a corner. Doe and T were the two. They were here on Earth to get their classroom prepared to become their crew because the window to the next level was about to close. The Kingdom of Heaven was only open for a short period of time. They gained discipline from their disciples because the urgency they implied. So if Doe and T knew all of that, and the immediacy is what was bringing disciples in, when would the gates of heaven draw close exactly? Their classroom had faith. Living on scraps, getting laughed at, and not seeing your family isn't easy, let alone traveling with strangers and sleeping in sleeping bags for months at a time. Beyond that, their lives were highly regimented, meditations and tasks. They'd rise early and go about their business, busy enough not to have time to sit around and ask too many questions. The crew would refer to any of their living spaces as earthship, spacecraft, or craft. It wasn't a kitchen or dining room, it was a neutral lab and consuming area. Everyone cut their hair and dressed as not to display their sexuality. I heard it referred to as astronaut training. They were preparing for a life aboard a spaceship on the next level. To me, it sounds like LARPing. Live action role playing. Where people go into parks and for the day they become the character they create to fit into a world. Running around, speaking in the language of their fantasy, and otherwise living out the dream of being someone else for a day. Being the nerd that I am, I am not above admitting for a weekend, playing pretend with a bunch of other adults that I'm aboard a spaceship or on an alien world, would be extremely fun. Okay. Stop yourself there, and snicker all you fucking want. But, Star Wars Galaxy Edge at Disney's California sounds amazing. This is the Disney park dedicated to Star Wars, and it's a massive success right now, with Rise of the Resistance being one of the most desired rides the world over. Like, I've played with many ideas of where I might go as a vacation next year. Maybe I'll go wander around Ireland and listen to the stories of the Fae. You know, I could go up to Vancouver and travel around to all the sites that they say the Bigfoot sightings have been. But maybe I'll go to Disneyland. And I'd love to find this magical portal and just escape the real world for a minute. I'd like to give myself over to the experience where when I fly the Millennium Falcon, even though I know it's a theme park, I could just enjoy it without being a condescending adult about it. I don't think I'm too old to play pretend for a weekend. Who's in? Alright, back to the story. But, I stand by it. We can judge them. You know, going years living in this fantasy world would be very difficult. But for a weekend, I think there's a lot of us out there that might actually enjoy it. To avoid too much human influence, the crew were paired with the person they were least likely to get along with. Sent out for week-long missions together where they could monitor each other's activities and report on them if they started to regress on their training. If ever they were instructed to talk to their family, they had their check partner there to monitor the phone calls. 
The check partner would give misleading information about their location and a checklist of assurances that they are happy and love what they're doing. If the check partners were becoming too close, they would get reassigned. This removal of humanity reminds me of a very specific species in Star Trek, the Vulcans, best played by the man himself, Leonard Nimoy. We know his voice. It is so distinctive. Hello, I'm Leonard Nimoy. The following tale of alien encounters is true, and by true, I mean false. It's all lies, but they're entertaining lies, and in the end, isn't that the real truth? The answer is no. I don't know who the man was in his private life, but his voice has been a part of so many aspects of my life. The Simpsons Treehouse of Horrors, various animated characters, the Transformers. He is the voice of logic and reason, of calm, dispassionate understanding. Can you give me a warp eight? Aye, sir. And maybe a wee bit more. I'll sit on the warp engines myself and nurse them. That position, Mr. Scott, would not only be unavailing, but also undignified. I wonder, looking at what I do now for the podcast and marveling at the world and all its mysteries I still haven't discovered yet, maybe Leonard Nimoy had an even bigger impact on my life than I realized. Have you ever seen an episode of In Search Of? Monsters and UFOs and this amazing synthesizer music? One of the top 10 goals for the show is when the Midnight Owl is at a point I can get some sweet synthesizer music to help set a better mood. Think John Carpenter in his prime. Be honest with me. Is there anything better than a dramatic moment and then BAM! Synthesizer? Okay, back to Mr. Spock. The character Mr. Spock is probably what he was best known for. He was a man of science. He would not dismiss a hypothesis, but required evidence before making a rational decision. Vulcans had a very human look. Pointy ears, short hair, arched, upswept eyebrows. A look that is mimicked in the exit video for pretty much all of the class members. Mr. Spock was half-human and half-Vulcan. It was a plague to his sanity. Often his humanity was seen as a weakness until the end of the episode when an emotion such as empathy would save the day. I wonder if Doe and T saw it the other way around, that it was his humanity that was truly his failing as they aspired to be more like Mr. Spock. Another aspect of the Vulcan race that I could draw comparisons to is they do not allow their sexual drive to overpower and control them. Vulcans are not without emotion. They are just trained from childhood to overcome them. It's a part of their value system. Pon Far is a joke many a nerd of the past few decades have giggled at. For us awkward, dorky types, it's funny. For the Vulcans, it's a serious medical condition. Once every seven years, they're overcome with a hormone imbalance and they must have sexual intercourse with someone, because if they don't, it could cause insanity, loss of self-control, and even death. If they can't find a date, uh, they can overcome the Pon Far through meditation, violence, shock, and simulation. It's comforting to know that I have some options. I could get a headspace account, punch a hole in the wall, put a fork in the toaster, and then savage a gym sock. And then just another quiet seven years of isolation. Kind of sounds nice. 
Doe and T's followers, the classroom, saw themselves as monks and were frustrated at the parents and the family of those that joined for not respecting what they were doing. Doe and T are quoted referring to the pride a family must feel when their child joins a monastery. Why could they not understand that they were asking no more than that? When someone becomes a monk or joins a priesthood, they would take on a new name. They may take a vow of celibacy, and this was no different. Even the human body was now being referred to as a vehicle. When someone died, the vehicle had broken down. When they were angry, sad, or missed their families, that was the vehicle's response, not the true soul. They needed to disassociate and overcome the chemical and biological responses a vehicle had. Essentially become the Vulcan. T, the Heavenly Father that was driving the vehicle once known as Bonnie Lou Nettles, never fully overcame her vehicle's emotional drivers. In secret, she was sending money and letters to her daughter Terry. What's good for the goose is not good for the gander, I suppose. At the beginning of the 80s, T and Doe received a large sum of money. No one's exactly sure. Maybe it was through an inheritance of one of the members or donations as followers came into the cult and sold off their worldly possessions. But they were able to start renting houses in various states and cities they'd moved to, covering the windows and being really secretive about their lifestyle. Instead of the cult, no one knew anything about these people. They spread their followers, which numbered about 40 at this time, over several houses. T and Doe often getting their own place. T and Doe wanted to go unnoticed because they still feared the government coming to kill them. They were the two, after all, and the Bible was clear that the world would reject their truth. In 1978, 918 Americans died in a settlement called Jonestown in Guyana. This was a religious settlement dedicated to the cult leader Jim Jones. Jim Jones murdered his followers, attempting to escape his control, as well as the government officials sent to check in on the safety and security of the members of Jonestown. Jim Jones then convinced, cajoled, or threatened his people into revolutionary suicide by drinking cyanide-laced punch drink. Pop culture says it was Kool-Aid. 918 people, gone in a moment. If you've ever heard the term, don't drink the Kool-Aid, this is the event that coined it. I always used it in the context of brainwashing. If you drink the Kool-Aid, you've been fooled into a belief. Don't drink the Kool-Aid is an expression that I've used and heard my entire life. The true impact has never really hit me. Jonestown was 10 years before I was even born. The expression can be used a few different ways. Blind obedience to authority, government, political movement, or religion. Unquestionably handing over your will to another. Even if you are handed contradictory information, you cannot process it. With how polarized our politics have become, this expression has not seen the last of its use. Also, don't drink the Kool-Aid can be used if an idea or fad becomes popular and everyone starts jumping in. Fads come and go. Remember when everybody had Livestrong bracelets? The best current example for me of this is when I see people taking social media seriously. Pretending it has some actual social standing or meaning. That somehow an online persona is a one-for-one -one representation of who they are. People I love and respect have drank the Kool-Aid. I've had to have conversations about why I didn't post directly on someone's wall, Happy Birthday. Saying I called them wasn't enough because the world should know I said happy birthday. Ever get cut-eye for deleting someone off Facebook because you haven't spoken in five plus years? 
Jim Jones said it was revolutionary suicide. I see it as mass murder. Not much of an illusion of choice taking poison in a compound in a foreign land at gunpoint. T and Doe might have seen people attempting to live their lives in accordance with God's will, and were forced into the actions that ended Jonestown. Fear of the government and the prophecy of the end times was not the only thing T and Doe had to fight against. Students of the class were becoming restless. They had been promised the demonstration. When would the UFO arrive? When would the transformation take place? Were they beyond human enough yet? Imagine kids in the back seat of a car, kicking out a chair in front of them. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Am I an alien yet? Am I an alien yet? After five years, the day was finally here. Bonnie Lou Nettles said the spacecraft was coming to pick them up. She had been in psychic connection with the craft and it was on its way. They gathered on a hilltop. T and Doe had the crew prepare to stay up all night awaiting the visitation. Nothing happened. No UFO. No divine sign. Nothing. As the sun rose, T announced it was merely a test. That this was not an easy journey and anyone that wanted a quick solution to get to the next level should look elsewhere. There were some members that left. The rest of the crew became more rabid in their devotion, doing anything for T and Doe's approval. We have all been in workplaces that are insane. At a certain point, after years of dedicated service to a place, you have to look around and make a decision. Do I leave? Do I give up? Do I accept the fact that I am too smart and hardworking to have put in this much time and effort to a place that isn't functional? There is no way I've wasted a large portion of my life. It has to be worth something. I will try harder. I will make this mean something. I think this happens in some personal relationships as well. Friendships and marriages continuing because they've been going for too long to not continue. Secretly, Bonnie Lou was devastated, writing to her daughter of the challenge to her faith. In the background of this, T and Doe's frustration with the families were growing. There was a network of parents creating and sending a newsletter to keep each other apprised of what was going on to the best of their knowledge and possible sightings from where they had contact. Nancy Brown created the newsletter. She would become the fulcrum to many families of the Heaven's Gate community, trying to keep hope alive, trying to understand the appeal of the group, sharing information on their possible whereabouts and dealing with the loss of contact. Nancy loved her son. Nancy's son, David Moore, joined the group at 19 years old in 1975. It took two years of the letters circulating before anyone from within Heaven's Gate would reach out to Nancy or her family. T and Doe had copies of Nancy's letters. No one reached out for two years. T and Doe were furious with what they saw as a meddler in other people's business. How could they not see that David was merely the vehicle and they were actively fighting to evolve his soul? T and Doe instructed Alexodi. David's religious name, to call from a payphone to talk to his mother and let her know that if she published in her newsletter the names of the families that wanted to hear from their children, they would. Hello, this is your uh, son David. If you want to know how you can help uh, these parents who want to hear from someone on the trip, uh, if you would uh, print 
in your newsletter the names of those parents who will promise not to kidnap their family members or keep them from doing what they want to do. I'll promise you that most of these parents will hear from their loved ones pretty quickly. And I don't want you to worry about me because there's really nothing to worry about. It's phrased in such a way that they're surprised the families still want to talk to their kids. I wonder what their mentality was. Deprogramming was a big thing in the 80s, early 90s. It's all mixed up with the brainwashing and thought control ideas of that time. It's too large to get into here, but long story short, it would take months of people being held against their will to break certain thought patterns that a cult or sect had instilled in their member makes sense on paper, until you think about the freedom of choice that is taken away from an individual. We can't decide for another what their thoughts or beliefs should be, so long as it isn't harmful to society. In 1980, the crew's membership was about 80 followers. T and Doe were in their 50s. It's not clear to me when this began, but it seems early on the group adopted a uniform look. Short hair, plain clothes, and walking shoes. Men and women were all similarly dressed. This has to do with overcoming one of the greatest human failings in the eyes of T and Doe. Sex and sexuality. This is why no children were allowed in the group. Members of the classroom were strictly abstinent and were encouraged to never masturbate. In the next level, there would be no sex. Again, the image of a gray we all know does not display reproductive organs. Our hormones control us. The more we are controlled by these urges, the urges of hate, love, sadness, even joy, the more we're closer to the human animal than human being. We must overcome our humanity to enter into the next evolutionary step. The crew were allowed time outside the craft to hold jobs. Often they were working with computers or as car mechanics. One interview I read was that a crew member had to switch industries because the hours he had as a line cook were not productive to his dedication to the classroom. It must have been a very supportive environment as people were getting jobs in computer shops, being certified as computer network engineers, becoming mechanics. Some of these people only had high school level educations. As a result of the increased pressure felt by the newsletter in 1982, Applewhite and Nettles allowed their disciples to call their families. They further relaxed their control in 1983, permitting their followers to visit relatives on Mother's Day. This is what's called the illusion of choice. You can go home. You aren't a prisoner, and you're not in a weird religious sect. You are here because you want to be here. If a crew member went home, what could they expect to find? Condescension and questions about their dedication of becoming a next-level alien being? The hurt feelings from families about being abandoned? If they were lucky and granted access, they might see the faces of their children that didn't recognize them because they were so young when they were abandoned. That could only leave a person with feelings of guilt and self-hate. No job. Sure, if you wanted to leave, the cult would gather resources for tickets, travel, and a small allotment. But the world has a funny way of moving on. People don't have a lot of sympathy for outsiders. Think about how you would react if a sibling or ex-wife showed up at your door after seven years of living in the wild. You think you're so fucking special you don't have to work? I have to. 
No, I don't like it, but that's the reality in which we live. When do you expect to buy a house? Your credit is fucked. You have no money, no prospects, no references. You're not going to get a job. I have a job and save my money, and I can't afford this city. Why would I be paying for you? How could you ever expect to find someone to live the rest of your life with when your beliefs are that far outside the norm? Yeah, sweetie, I still believe I'm going to become an alien when I die. Could anyone ever trust you to not abandon the life that you begin to build together after the cult because times get tough? How could a classroom member not go back? And if you left for too long while you decided on whether you wanted to rejoin the world or rejoin the cult, you may never find the group again because they were almost always on the move across the entirety of the United States. That's a lot of pressure to make up your mind in a weekend. The crew was only allowed short stays and were instructed to tell their families that they were studying computers at a monastery. It was a test, of course. But it also might have been more than that. In 1983, T's vehicle, Bonnie Lou Nettles, was diagnosed with cancer and had to have an eye removed. This was throwing the crew into a crisis. T was the Heavenly Father, God herself. T told the doctor that he was ignorant and knew nothing of what was going on. She believed that she could not die. It was her destiny to ascend with Doe. At least this is what she was saying to the crew. If she was beyond the rules of humanity and the natural laws of science, why did she have an eye removed? Around this time, Terry, Bonnie Lou's daughter, received a letter with the simple message. Bonnie Lou told her to be happy, to move forward with her life, and do her best to conform. Even Doe believed T would not die. Doe and T had been a team for 15 years. T may or may not have been holding the reins. I wasn't there. But by all appearances, she was in the leadership role. How could a lost man that abandoned his life to travel with this sage woman continue on without her? She was his protector, his mentor, his older member. It took two years for T to die. When she passed away in 1985 at the age of 57, she was a patient at a hospital under a fake name, Shelley West. It was a blow to the cult. Demonstration? The act they were all promised when the two were killed and resurrected before the world on the UFO could not happen. Her body did not go anywhere. Everything that had been promised was now in question because Bonnie Lou Nettle's body lay there before them. Doe was able to hold the group together by changing doctrine yet again. Her broken down vehicle was left behind because she ascended to the next level. Doe was left here because he had more work to do. But fear not... T would reach back from the next level and continue to guide the classroom. This revelation kept almost every member. At this time, only one member left the group. Seems like a minor alteration to the way things are set up for this cult. A quick patch to keep everyone together, an obvious solution. Bonnie Lou Nettle's body didn't disappear because that's the human aspect. Her soul, on the other hand, was T. The vehicle is Bonnie, the soul is T. Our spiritual leader is T, and that's what moved to the next level. I think we're all familiar with the term painting yourself into a corner. In fiction, it's a really tough thing to avoid. You want to hint to the reader where everything's going, but if you put too many breadcrumbs uh, out early, if you push the villain too hard, by the end of the first act, the story could be over, and you have nowhere else to take it other than some climactic ending. 
With this quick fix, the fate of Heaven's Gate, the fate of the crew, was sealed. Why? Because no longer were they waiting for physical worldly demonstration of the UFO being here to pick them up. They could leave their vehicles behind when the time was right and be transported to the next level, the kingdom above humanity. A tragedy piled on top of tragedy. This story is full of collateral damage, whether or not it was intended. Terry lived in her university dorm a few hours away from the hospital that her mother passed away at. Doe sent members to inform Terry. They were sent there to try to help her mourn her mother. Terry would come to learn that her mother passed away a few weeks before and the ceremony of spreading her ashes was already completed. She didn't even know her mother was sick. The classroom members that were there said that her mom would have liked her poster of Yoda because she saw him as very wise. Terry had not seen her mother face to face since she was abandoned. She did not know she was sick. By the morning, the members must have had new orders because they left without saying a word. The Heaven's Gate podcast I mentioned at the top of this episode by Glenn Washington has a clip from a tape that Doe sent Terry in secret where he is grieving for the loss of his older member and how Terry shouldn't feel sad. You can hear the fear and confusion and utter grief in his voice. It's kind of haunting. Well, folks, that's going to be the end of part one of Heaven's Gate. I'm hoping to have part two out really quickly to you. I don't know if you can tell, but uh, I had a cold this week, so I was not allowed to go to work. And with the current climate outside, I was too afraid to go out there for fear of maybe a mob coming up and dousing me fucking Purell as the unclean. On the good news, it would only be a mob of about 10 people spaced six feet apart. So, you know, I'd have a chance. I'm hoping you're enjoying this so far. It's such an intriguing story. But before we leave today, I've got a promo I'm going to run. It's for the AbraCast. It's a very exciting podcast with a deep catalog. Go check it out. If you enjoy it, make sure you leave a review. Maybe add a hoot hoot in there so he knows who sent you. You ever laid awake at night and wondered to yourself, what is the perfect diameter for my magic circle? What was the Babylon working? How do you change into a werewolf or the secret history of America? Why God didn't like Cain's offering? Who really did 9-11? Was it the Masons? Was it wizards? The mysteries of the Kama Sutra? What the hell is the Mandela effect? The Overton window? Modern art? The Kabbalah? Humunculus? Why Constantinople changed its name to Istanbul? Who was John Doe number two? The secret of the white eagle and the red lion. Then I might have the perfect podcast for you. I'm John and this is... The Abracast. Occult, history, conspiracy, and violence. Available wherever you find your favorite podcasts.